We get a chance to talk to a lot of organizations who are adopting big data and next generation applications to power their digital transformation. But one of the things that we find very often is that organizations want to run these next gen applications on premises, on their infrastructure and not in the cloud. And in those cases, they want that cloud-like experience to be able to flexibly consume infrastructure and change the infrastructure profile over time as the applications uh, demand change and the frameworks for processing that data change. And that's exactly what DriveScale is all about. Their software composable infrastructure model allows organizations to really deploy infrastructure in a new and unique way. Join us as we talk to one of the co-founders and the leader of the product management team from DriveScale. Stay tuned to the end of this episode for a special discount available to our listeners who want to attend Strata or AI conferences this year. And now, you're listening to The Big Data Beard. Hi, everyone. This is Corey Minton from the Big Data Beard team, and uh, we are excited to start our episode today to talk about software composable infrastructure and how that concept is so important to big data applications. Today, I'm joined by co-host, fellow bearded man, big data aficionado in the state of Alabama, Thomas Henson, and we've invited uh, one of the most interesting organizations in big data today who is working towards this software composable infrastructure model, DriveScale. And DriveScale was founded by a couple of really smart dudes. One of those dudes has been nice enough to join us. Tom Lyon is the co-founder and chief scientist at DriveScale. He, you may know that name because he's had his hand in the creation of a bunch of iconic products and technology, things like UCS and Nexus switching, IP switching in general, and NFS and Spark, because he was employee number eight at Sun. So we're excited to have Tom, and we're also joined by SK Vinod. Vinod is the VP of Product Management for DriveScale. He's got an awesome background in bringing emerging technologies to market around the world. And so, Tom and, and Vinod, thank you so much for joining us. Um, why don't I turn it over to you guys? Why don't you tell us a little bit about who DriveScale is and, and what, you're, what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, so DriveScale's founded a few years back, uh, basically looking at the incredible growth of scale-out technologies and the big data space has been probably the preeminent space where you just see really large clusters growing and growing. And uh, and yet the, the architecture for these things has been somewhat primitive because people have gone away from using virtual machines and SANS and NAS, both for cost and performance reasons. So every, everyone's using the cookie cutter uh, servers with direct attached storage. But as the clusters grow, you, you fundamentally always have an imbalance issue where either there's too much compute or too much storage. So, so how, how do you get around that? And so composable infrastructure is a way of bringing back some of the fundamental advantages of separation of compute and storage without leaving behind the, the cost and performance requirements that these new applications have. Interesting. So, so the goal here is, is it's kind of funny you say primitive because it feels like everything that's happening in big data has to be the newest and coolest thing, but it sounds like you went, like we went backwards in terms of, of IT deployments. Well, in some ways, um, you know, it's, it was the, the right thing to do. And yet, obviously, uh, there, there was a reason that people had SANS and there was a reason that people had virtual machines and stuff. 
Um, and th those same problems exist, but we need different types of solutions to get there. Okay. So, so help me understand how you guys get there. When you say, you know, there's this fundamental imbalance between performance and capacity, like we've, you know, a, a bunch of us have seen this and, and talked about it over, you know, over the other episodes and just in general is that that primitive deployment model of tightly coupling storage and compute uh, was cost effective. But like you said, it's really limiting in terms of how you respond to changes, not only in just kind of growing your environment, but also the changing nature of the landscape of processing framework. So what does software composable infrastructure mean to, to actually, or how does it actually enable that, that disaggregation you talk about? Well, it's interesting. Uh, when we explain our system, most people kind of look at us as a storage solution, but most of our work takes place on the server side. And it's really about easily managing the hundreds or thousands of servers and connecting them to the right right storage in the right place. And so it's uh, we really have to work on, on both sides of that connection to, to, to make things really easy. And uh, part of achieving the cost target on the storage side is making sure that there's no extra bells and whistles. So the storage targets are incredibly dumb, but you know, incredibly cheap and, and fast. And we, we sort of tie it all together with, with our software. Yeah, so one of the things I'd like to add about that is that the, the platform that we have, we would like to call it a composability platform rather than just a point product. And the idea behind the platform is very simply this. You take diskless servers on one side of this platform architecture, and the servers, when I say diskless, they could be of any form factor. They could be rack mount servers, bladed form factor, modular servers, and so on, as long as they don't have much disks in them. And then on the other side of the platform, architecture is basically just raw storage, so it's hard disks. Uh, and in the future, it could be uh, SSDs as well. And what we do is we compose by binding together any number of hard disks to any of the servers at the scale of the data center on demand for whatever workload you want to run. And, the, and these bindings are not fixed in the sense that they could be modified on the fly. You can add more capacity, you reduce the capacity, change the mix, uh, and even do things like suspend a cluster, remove its hard disks, and assign the CPU to something else, and then bring back the original cluster on demand. So fundamentally, composability affords a level of flexibility and agility that you cannot get by fixing uh, compute and storage in one box. Okay, so so most most of us who have been around the at least the Hadoop ecosystem as the kind of the starting point, we look at um, you know deployment for hardware as like we talked about before this kind of primitive thing of you buy your industry standard kind of commodity to you server that's got you know as much CPU and memory as you can get, but also just you know anywhere from twelve to twenty four drives in it, and those are. Those drives are physically presented as, you know, kind of um, JBOD to that particular server. They're bound to that server. And we just buy lots and lots of those pizza boxes, as it were, right? So what you're saying is that now we buy a different kind of server and we buy a different kind of storage and you guys do something to make that possible. Help me unpack the architectural way sure. to get there. Sure. So, Tom, do you want to add to that? Uh, yeah, I, I can take that. So... Uh, f fundamentally, the, the, the product talks between servers and industry standard JBOD chassis. And these JBOD chassis are, are just dumb SaaS 
based things, you know, serial SCSI that have no processors of their own. And of course, the servers uh, typically don't have a SAS interface unless you pay extra. So what we do is we we convert Ethernet to SAS with a, a box that we built that goes in the rack with the servers. And, and, and basically, that function of that box is to make it look like all the disks are present on Ethernet. And now any server can, can connect to any disk uh, subject to these whole bunch of security and top topology constraints. And so uh, it allows you to choose any server, including the cheapest ones, and it allows you to choose to choose very cheap storage because these dumb JBODs are very little more than, than sheet metal. And every every server vendor has a, a selection of these JBODs. So you can, you can buy still buy hardware from who, whoever you choose at the at the cheapest cost and yet tie it together with late binding to, to get the right kind of infrastructure you need for your, your application. So let me ask um, if you know, if we're going through and we're deploying, say, just Hadoop or Spark or, you know, something like that, are, is this, is there any architectural changes with how you deploy it? And, you know, maybe I'm thinking from a different perspective, but, you know, the way I, the way I came up, you know, traditionally, you know, you looked at it, we had our name node and you have your data nodes. Does anything change from architectural perspective? I mean, I understand that we can, we can scale, you know, the compute or the uh, CPU as we need, but what about deploying it with DriveScale? How does that work? Yeah, so at the fund, fundamentally, there's no visibility uh, to the higher layers. Once once we connect the hard drives, it looks just like a locally connected hard drive, and you can install whatever you like. But what we do 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 is tie in. Well, I should back up a little. Fundamentally, part of being composable means you're you're you have an API that that makes things automatable. And so what we do is we tie into higher level orchestration systems. And there's two examples of that today. One is with Cloudera Director, that's normally used for instantiating clusters in the cloud. We've written a backend for that so they can instantiate clusters using our composable infrastructure. And, and so again, it's something where it's totally transparent to the, the Hadoop software. But we facilitate uh, optimizing the, the layer below Hadoop. And then the second example of the orchestration is with Kubernetes. So we, we integrate with Kubernetes so that if you have uh, uh, containers that have heavy storage demands, you can connect them to storage. And now the storage will follow the container around as Kubernetes schedules it. So I want to come back to Kubernetes in a second, but one of the things that you talked about was that there's this, it's, you know, from what I know about DriveScale, there's this control plane or there's this software that, that works with the hardware, right? So when we think about deployment, there's a, there's a layer in between that Cloudera director or any of the applications and the underlying hardware. Tell me a little bit about what that control plane does to enable that. I think what Vinod, you call it that binding of drives to a particular server and understanding what those resources even are. Well, at the the first thing we do is all about discovery of the resources and discovery of the topology. So we understand the complete SAS topology. We understand the complete Ethernet topology, and then those feed into the higher level composition layer, where you tell it, "I want uh, you know 17 servers, each with you know." 13 hard drives, and it can just go create those, and you don't have to care which servers and which hard drives, but you get 
you get the the right infrastructure and it makes sure that the servers and the hard drives are close close together based on the network topology so that you're not wasting you know so that you're not encountering uh, network bottlenecks and so that's done through a, a management system that lives outside of the the uh, managed resources um, and so it's, that's where all the smarts live but then it, there's an agent on each server and an agent on our uh, device that translates uh, Ethernet to SAS. Did that did that cover things? Yeah, no, absolutely. Sorry, I was trying to come off a of mute and I couldn't get my mouse over there fast enough. <laughs> um, so it's interesting though, because one of the things that we've we've talked to, to other, uh, you know, people from HortonWorks and from from other organizations that have, have kind of been leaders in developing the processing frameworks that matter. It always sounded like the network bottleneck was. Uh, was always a concern. So you're saying that the way you guys develop the network, like you don't like you don't think that data locality is important in the server that going across that that adapter, that bridge that you guys have, is effective enough to combat that that argument that you need data local to the server. Well, we we do care about locality, but we think we think we can afford typically easily afford one one hop. And so if you look at your typical Ethernet environment today, people are deploying at least 10 gigabit switches. They should be deploying at least 25 gig. Um, and they overbook uh, the bandwidth coming out of a rack. So it's oversubscribed typically four to one. And that means all the rest of that switch bandwidth is available in the rack. So if you keep the disks in the same rack as the server, there's a huge amount of bandwidth available. And then if you're careful, you can design you know, design your network such that you can move the disks even further away. And so we have one customer, for instance, who's who's putting in racks just with servers next to racks just with uh, storage. And and they're confident that their network uh, architecture can keep up with that. But there's a, you know, you can, do, you can do things either way. But if you look at how Ethernet has been progressing, We've gone from 10 gig to 100 gig availability pretty quickly. And next year, we're going to see 400 gig availability in the top of rack. So there's there's a lot of bandwidth happening. Yeah, absolutely. So so curiosity. So now you said it's something you've got. A, you've got customers that are that are deploying this where they've got just racks of servers sitting next to racks of storage within the context of your architecture. Um, are you able to like are we able to use uh, a, a varying set of technologies and the reason i say that meaning let me unpack that server um, manufacturers have to go through the same thing that many other organizations do which is dealing with what each of their component manufacturers makes and many times software developed to run on these commodity servers doesn't deal well with these disparities in core counts or ram density or disk types right so are is 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 drive scales technology allowing organizations to introduce new types of servers new disk profiles in terms of you know the media and the speed of the disk and those kind of things are you guys enabling that evolution of new technology being brought into the same clusters or at least into that same resource pool well we're not we're not solving all the problems at once you know it's it's baby steps and certainly there are there are types of clusters where they they really want to see homogeneous resources Whereas other other types of clusters can deal with it better, um, 
but what we do is we we at least let you reduce the number of types of servers that you use uh, because now you don't need different servers just because they have different storage requirements. And in the future, we'll be able to disaggregate other things too. For instance, uh, we're looking at GPU disaggregation. Uh, FPGA acceleration is coming along, so maybe that's something that could be disaggregated. And, and still, the network bandwidth is such that those are both entirely feasible now. What about memory? Are we disaggregating memory at some point? Memory over that, over that, network? That there's a lot of talk about that, and the the Gen Z push that both Dell and uh, HP are very very much behind is supposed to address that area. I'm I'm a little skeptical about how soon that happens, but I'm I'm sure it'll happen someday. Okay, so so we've unpacked the infrastructure uh, kind of architecture a bit. Um, I want to talk about the the business impact. Like, what does this mean? For an organization that, and and some companies have already started. Actually, I'd say the majority of organizations have already started on the path of, hey, I need to build a big data scale out architecture environment, typically on a Hadoop type, you know, deployment. Uh, very popular in almost every organization. So, what's the what's the impact of of us, you know, an organization like that, looking at your technology, and what's the business benefit or the just more that that tangible operational benefit that your customers experience when moving to a drive scale type architecture. Of course. So um, uh, before we go there, I want to talk a little bit about performance because one of the things, and I think uh, Tom touched on this slightly as well, is if it's one Ethernet hop away, the performance of using a disaggregated composable infrastructure product from drive scale with the disk sitting in the JBOD is actually equivalent to performance of disks sitting inside the server. So uh, we ran micro benchmarks on uh, with Hadoop, uh, FIO, and uh, Teragen, Terasat, and the numbers come in almost at par with disks sitting inside the servers. So let's talk a little bit about business impact. Uh, I'll uh, illustrate this by giving one customer example. So we have a customer who is a, a small healthcare analytics company. Uh, they uh, started out as most small customers do in the public cloud. So they hosted their application in uh, AWS uh, and they ran it in AWS for two years. What they found was they started, as their cluster started growing a little bit, uh, they started finding noisy neighbor issues. Uh, and so they went to AWS and said, uh, do, how do we solve this? The only way to get it, uh, to solve it was to actually go to dedicated EC2 instances. As soon as they went to dedicated EC2, the cost on a monthly basis went from somewhere around $10,000 to within three months they were paying $50,000 a month to AWS. And so they came across DriveScale. They said, let's bring this in, do a POC, ran the POC, and uh, decided they want to migrate everything over to DriveScale. So as of last August, actually this customer ClearSense is running their entire Hadoop big data infrastructure. And admittedly, it's not very big, but it's running on-prem with using DriveScale. And their costs went back down to about $10,000 a month. And this is all on Dell hardware. Now, the second part of this is even more interesting, which is uh, with the servers and the, with the same sort of server uh, core count memory and the disk count, spindle count they had per server, they found that they were only using about 20% of the CPU capacity on every server node. And so they're using one U servers, they provisioned 12 drives per server to start with, and that was sufficient to run their uh, one of their applications. And because they have so much extra CPU capacity left over, they're buying several more JBODs, and they're provisioning 
40 disk drives per server now. They haven't changed the server, but they're able to provision 40 disk drives and run a whole bunch of different apps in, on, in parallel. So uh, that's one customer example, right? And that sort of highlights uh, the coming out of the public cloud, highlights the cost savings. If you're running, especially infrastructure, if you're running it 24 seven, uh, you really uh, see the benefits of running it on-prem. And the advantage of running it with, uh, with the drive scale is this ability to change the, uh, you know, to flexibly allocate resources on demand. One of the other things we touch upon in our, from an operational perspective is that we handle, uh, we are able to handle, you know, failures at different levels much more elegantly. For example, if a single disk drive fails, you can swap it out and assign another drive from the JBOD uh, without having to send somebody to the data center. If a whole server node fails, you can take its disks and move it to another server node. Uh, and you can assign, uh, you can increase the capacity of storage assigned to a server, you can reduce it, you can move things around, all of that is uh, is phenomenal benefit to the end user customer. On the flip side is another customer called AppNexus. Uh, they are the second largest ad tech company in the world behind Google DoubleClick. They have uh, roughly 2,400 uh, nodes uh, running Hadoop in several data centers around the world. Uh, and their use case is not just MapReduce, but uh, they're able to reduce, shrink the number of server SKUs down to just one. Uh, they have, they're the customer who has a, a server rack sitting next to a, a storage rack. Uh, one of the things that they see as an advantage of using this, doing it this way is that the storage rack can actually stay on-prem for a six-year life cycle, and they can swap out the server racks on a more frequent basis. Oh, so they can take advantage of uh, changing... CPU memory kind of configurations more quickly. So you can actually have data persist while servers get swapped in with DriveScale. That's kind of interesting. Yes, absolutely. And uh, and then the other neat thing about this whole architecture there is that, again, this customer has a MapReduce job that runs for about 11, 12 hours a day. And as soon as they're done with the MapReduce, they want to use the same servers for other applications. And they can simply you know take away the drives, keep the cluster configuration the same, but just disk disconnect the drives by suspending the cluster, use the servers for a different app, and they have things like Aerospike and Vertica in their environment, plus a lot of home homegrown apps. And then the plan is to then reinstantiate the MapReduce cluster uh, as soon as you need it again the next day. And so it gives them a level of, of flexibility and the ability to reuse resources and actually optimize the use of the server resources uh, much more efficiently. And like you said, they by, by having different life cycles, they can actually swap out servers on a more frequent basis as the CPUs get more powerful uh, without having to touch the storage. So uh, this is interesting because this is one of those that I think is, it's starting to, to creep into the, the conversations that I have with a lot of enterprises and frankly, just even at the conferences. It's this concept that, you know, cloud is an, is an excellent model for deployment for that rapid spin up and spin down of resources that as a service model but a lot of organizations run into one cost driver challenges, which you outlined with, uh, I think it was um, one, one of your, your first customers you talked to about how their their costs went up when they had to deal with performance challenges uh, in the cloud. So it sounds like you've enabled that repatriation. So for organizations that maybe started in the cloud, you could still give them that cloud-like elastic experience, but deploying it on premises. That's a that's a really powerful thing. I. I I don't think I fully understood. Uh, is that something that, I mean, is this, 
is it scaring the cloud guys? Like, is AWS so worried about you guys? I think I think we're still the size of a, a gnat on the elephants be <laughs> behind there. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, it, it gives people an, a new choice of uh, how to do things. And there's no there's no reason that you can't have some of that same kind of flexibility on prem. Excellent. So so we talked about you can you could switch in servers, and the, the benefit is just obviously this this really flexible operating model and agile response. We touched on a second there. You brought up this concept of some some integrations within Kubernetes. So obviously, most of us in technology, we've seen a ton of updates around Kubernetes. It continues to be um, kind of the winner, the darling in that space. What have you guys? What does Kubernetes mean to you? Like, why are you guys investing in Kubernetes, and what unique value are you trying to deliver there? Well, we we see along with most of the rest of the world that Kubernetes is you know the answer to a lot of questions. People have more trouble agreeing on the questions than the answer, I think. Um, but we've we've created a, a persistent volume driver plugin for Kubernetes, as well as a scheduling plugin, so that it's easy to have storage-intensive applications in the cluster. And so we're oriented towards solving the storage problem in the cluster, and not not pointing at the storage that's outside of the cluster. And uh, so, for instance, if you're running lots of MySQL instances, or maybe with Blue Data, you're running HDFS inside Kubernetes, things like that. That's that's what we can really opt optimize, and we get you away from being trapped, having the storage trapped in a single server. So, if a single server goes down or needs to go down, it's trivial for our uh, storage to follow the container to a different server. Oh, so it essentially it's the volume, but just across your infrastructure versus tied to a server. Right. Huh. That's pretty interesting. So that's persistence, like you said, for storage intensive workloads. Hmm. So other kind of – oh, sorry. But no, go ahead. Yeah, the other, the other point about, to be made about that is that it's not just about storage persistence alone because there are lots of other technologies that will claim storage persistence, but it's about persistence with performance because we give you the same performance of direct attached storage, of raw disk drives inside the Kubernetes volume uh, attached to a pod, uh, it's as if the disks were local to the server or the container. And you don't get that with most shared storage. Yeah. So one of the other things that you talked about in terms of new technologies you're starting to look at is um, emerging techs is around like GPUs and uh, I think you said FPGAs and otherwise. Clearly the use case for those is typically around machine learning, deep learning. Tell us a little bit, a little bit about what you're doing in the deep learning, machine learning space to empower sort of similar results that we've seen in traditional big data, but with these new emerging use cases? Well, uh, we haven't done anything specific for GPUs yet, but it turns out <clears throat> that a lot of the people in the deep learning space are, are using HDFS because the deep learning workload is pretty similar to an analytical workload. Um, and in fact, uh, there's a lot of new servers that are GPU optimized and in this blog, uh, I wrote a blog entry about the Dell server that's been announced that supports four GPUs in a 1U box. And it's a very nice high-density GPU solution, but now there's no room for any storage in that box. <laughs> well, not only no room for storage, but have you guys seen the power consumption of a four GPU box? Yeah. Like, I don't but, know if we have enough power in the rack to <laughs> handle more than three or four of those. Yeah, people's yeah. that's, a, that's a, another big problem. Uh, but uh, but a lot of people would then have, you know, GPU servers 
tied to other HDFS servers running traditional direct attach. But what we say is, no, you just run the HDFS on the same node, same GPU servers and attach the hard drives uh, with our technology. So just bring HDFS to the GPU, GPU accelerated workload rather than bring the workload to the data? Right. Huh. And okay. You, you get the benefits of having a single single type of server doing all the work. And, that, so, and that's kind of what we have in common with uh, the hyperconverged space as well. Yeah. Because in, in hyperconverged, you have a single pool of CPUs doing both the compute and the storage. And we, we, we like that. We don't want to waste these incredibly fast CPUs just on storage tasks. Yeah. So are there are there other I'm thinking things like NVMe and and other kind of acceleration technologies are, are is there anything interesting around NVMe that that DriveScale is enabling or has plans to enable? Uh-huh. Um yeah, we we that's kind of our current activity. We're not ready to announce details yet, but uh <laughs> Oh darn, thought I got you. But you could <laughs> you could you could guess a lot. And and the the industry is actually doing a fair amount of stuff there with the NVMe over fabrics uh, standards activity, yeah. and so that that's a good way to think about the data plane is that you're you're now able to move the the NVMe SSDs out of out of the box, and our value add really comes in the rest of the problem. You know the other ninety percent of the problem that's not the data data plane about how do you discover, manage, and secure all this stuff in a way that makes it really usable. Yeah. So Tom, in, in your role, I mean, you've, you've got a, a kind of a, a neat background. I'm curious to hear two, I got two questions for you. One, when you look at this, you know, at drive scale, what you're doing, what your plans are, I'm curious, what do you think are the next big sort of hurdles that the the industry needs to, 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 to tackle in order for us to be successful achieving the goals of, you know, machine learning, deep learning, data analytics at the scale we need for the future? Um, but like, what are the things that you're working on that you're interested in that you're paying attention to in this ecosystem? Wow, um, that's a tough question to answer because I'm I'm I've always been kind of a kind of guy who will read read anything and try to absorb what's going on. Um, but yeah, I've I've been paying a lot of attention to the analytics world, and then deep learning has kind of sprouted out of that. And I, I certainly don't understand the math behind it, but, but I think some of the systems issues are the same, same old thing. Um, I think from the industry's perspective as a whole, there's still a lot of work to do to make GPUs and FPGAs really usable in, uh, in you know, broad-scale computing context. So I think yeah. that that's where there's going to be a lot of action. Yeah, absolutely. And then I got to ask, I mean, you, you, you had a, uh, some some hands and some really interesting technology from Sun and and, and others around uh, like Epsilon Networks. How did you end up getting to starting to work on these data analytics problems? Because those were those were clearly pretty infrastructure oriented, uh, you know, <laughs> developments. This is very much a it's still infrastructure, but it's totally in, outside the the industry you're in before. How did you get into this? Well, uh, it's not that far off. Uh, my my co-founder Satya Nishtala and I, we were both at Cisco working on the the UCS product line, and so you know the UCS is kind of the gold-plated server line. Uh, originally, it was just the blade servers, but now now has rack servers, and I like to say it was very high-end hardware to solve 
the problem of, of running lots of fragile software. Uh, but in the meantime, all these analytical systems like, like Hadoop and many other scale-out systems have come along with kind of what you think of as anti-fragile software, where they're, they're very resilient on their own. So now you don't need that kind of hardware anymore. And so we, we were at Cisco looking at this, this booming growth of the commodity server market and wondering how the heck, you know, where, where is that going to go? And how the heck does one add value to that kind of uh, market? And so this, this is our answer, DriveScale. Nice. And you guys have been in business for how long now? About four years. About four years. And how big of an organization are you guys now? I'm um, still small. Yeah. So 25-ish. Awesome. Very cool. Well, guys, I, I, I appreciate the, the time you spent with us. It sounds like software composable infrastructure delivers some really interesting value back to organizations trying to deploy scale-out applications in a flexible and agile way. Certainly interesting, as you said, customers looking at repatriating uh, those workloads from the cloud where cost or uh, noisy neighbors have become a concern. So that's super interesting. I'm curious to hear from from you, Tom, and you, Vinod. Uh, are you guys involved in the, the big data conference circuit? Are you attending? Where could we find you guys uh, in the public domain where we could learn more? Yeah, we, we usually go to the, the big data conferences, although um, what we're seeing is that the the attendance in those conferences has shifted more and more to the data scientists and far fewer infrastructure people. And so the, the conferences are becoming somewhat less relevant for us. And, so, and what, so you bring up a good point. I wanna, I wanna press pause there because that's something really interesting. We've heard, some, we've heard some similar things and I'm curious because a lot of our passion is around those folks that bridge the gap between like the data scientists achieving their objectives and the enterprise infrastructure folks like, how do you deploy and run these things, right? Much the job of the data engineer, the IT practitioner, IT ops, or site reliability engineer, whatever you want to call it, that's actually responsible for designing and deploying these systems. Where are those guys hiding? Like, because those those guys used to go to these conferences. I totally agree with you. I'm having a hard time personally finding out where those folks go and where they go learn. Well, what, what we've had much more success with recently is uh, the vendor conferences, right? So we're really looking forward to Dell EMC World. Uh, in May, so that that's where the the IT ops guys go, as far awesome. as as far as we can tell. Yeah, so it looks like you guys have relationships with Dell EMC. I think Cisco probably based on your 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 uh, your past with those guys. Any other big uh, enterprise technology vendors that you have great partnerships with? Uh, we're in discussions with pretty much everyone you could name, <laughs> um, but yeah, we're furthest ahead right now with Dell and Cisco. We've learned a lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal. In a segment we like to call Rapid Fire. Pew, pew. The way it'll work is I will ask each of you uh, one question, and we'll just do this. We'll go Tom Vinod each time. Tom, you talked more, so you get to, I think you outrank Vinod, so you get to go first. So we'll ask the same question. Tom, just give us the first answer that comes to mind, and then Vinod, you give your answers. That sound good? Okay. Yep, sounds good. All right, cool. All right, so here we go. What year do you think Skynet will go online? <laughs> oh, way too soon. <laughs> Say, uh, 2030. All right, Vinod? Uh, I think 2050. 2050. All right, a little further out. I, I personally think it's already online and I'm afraid of it, so I want to say nice things. Um, 
If you bought me a book, what would it be? Or what's maybe the best book you've read recently? Probably the most outstanding book of the past five years I've read is this Cutting for Stone, which is kind of a medical medical uh, thing. Um, Abraham Varghese is the author. He's, he's a Stanford doctor and, and professor and author. So it's very interesting. Brilliant. Vinod? Yeah, I like, uh, recently I read, I finished reading The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. I don't know if I'd recommend it to everybody, but I like it. All right. Uh, what genre of music are you currently enjoying? I'm a, I grew up in the early 80s, so I'm a new wave kind of guy. New wave. Killer, dude. What about you, Vinod? Well, there's an Indian, uh, uh, there's a form of singing called Sufi singing or Sufi songs, and that's what I'm listening to nowadays. Hmm. You do a good, uh, do, you, do you sing it well yourself? Could we get a performance? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. That would have been brilliant. All right. Uh, Mute him. <laughs> that's right he doesn't we're going to take him back to japan i know he spent some time in japan or overseas we're going to get him in a, a karaoke bar at some point actually all right can, can i tell you something cool about vinod please sure he, he spent a lot of time in the merchant marine sailing those huge huge commercial uh cargo ships so he's our secret weapon with the container strategy <laughs> oh that's awesome so i'm curious merchant marines i actually don't know enough about what the merchant marines do i so do you do you go to boot camp for merchant marines or are you purely uh, sailing? No, merchant marine training academy. But you got to realize this. I don't know people listening to this, but ninety percent of the world's cargo goes on ships across the world. So that's what I was working on for twelve years. Very cool. So you have a tight connection to containers. I like that, Tom. That's funny. All right. So, um, all right, fun one. What is your favorite piece of what I will refer to as generally useless technology? So something that you. Maybe a personal piece of tech that you think it's cool, but you get that it's kind of dumb. Boy, there's there's been so many cool toys. You know, like 15 years ago, it was Furbies. <laughs> Furbies. <laughs> Which are really cool until until they start waking you up accidentally at 3 in the morning. Uh, I'll tell you what else does that. Uh, Amazon's Echo. So if you, if you lose power in the middle of the night and then... It comes back on that thing had that that waking cycle. I think that thing is the worst piece of technology in the history. <laughs> oh, it kills me. Uh, yeah. My Vinod, answer, what about you? My answer is the iPhone. I'm really tired of it. Man, my uh, my wife just bought a book about how your something about how your phone's changed you, and it's basically just a doomsday about how your phone is making you a moron. So I think you're probably right. Um, Tom, what is your biggest personal money pit right now? Oh, houses. I've I have two houses, and they're both little pits. Oh, gotcha. That's a pretty popular answer. Vinod, how about you? <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. I have, I have two and a half actually, and uh, yep. Please tell me they're not all in the Bay Area. <laughs> no, one, one in the Bay Area, one in Mexico, and one in India. Oh, you poor soul. All right. <laughs> well, so I, I'm guessing you've been everywhere interesting, but I guess Tom, are you going anywhere really interesting soon? Uh, no. Can't think no. of anywhere. Good for you. They keep me pretty busy here. Vinod, how about you? Anywhere interesting to your cool houses in Mexico and India or anything cool? Yeah, well, the plan is to go to Mexico more often, but uh, uh, the coolest place I've been to recently, I think, is Amsterdam. That's a great town. All right, so last question. Tom, what uh, show are you currently binging on? Oh, this is embarrassing. Uh, I like it. I've been I've been I've binged through all the Star Treks, 
but now I'm currently on Andromeda, if you remember that one. Oh, wow. You are full on, brother. I appreciate that. Vinod, how about you? Well, Can you been, nerd that on some? Yeah, no, I've been going backwards a little bit. I've been binging on Frasier, and uh, it's unfortunate that John Mahoney just passed away a couple of days ago. Oh, did he really? I didn't know that. I was just about to do an ensemble of uh, tossed salad and scrambled eggs, but I guess I won't now that you took it down the sad path. <laughs> All right. Well, Tom and Vinod, uh, where can we find you online? Are you guys on the Twitter machine or on the on the the YouTube or anything like that? Yeah, I'm on I'm on Twitter. I'm uh, AKA underscore Pugs. Which is so I got to ask, what's that about Pugs? Are you really into Pug Dogs? Uh, no, oh. it's actually short for Pugsley from the Adams family, and that's pretty much what I looked like in high school. So, so the name. <laughs> I did not make that connection. I was totally thinking you just had like a house full of pugs. <laughs> that's awesome. Vinod, how about you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, uh, I'm uh, at SK Vinod, I think. K underscore Vinod. And go. LinkedIn, and I don't do Facebook anymore. Oh, that thing's a just burning trash pile isn't it yeah well guys thank you so much for the time we enjoyed the conversation for those of you listening please go out check out drivescale.com brilliant piece of technology hang out with the guys when they uh, come and attend some of the cool technology conferences that the vendors are putting on which who knew that's where it practitioners interested in big data were have a great day if you're listening to this podcast chances are you like big data and you like to learn well, we do too, and that's why we partnered with O'Reilly Media. As a community partner for their incredible strata data and artificial intelligence conferences that are taking place around the world. If you would like a 20% discount on these conferences, simply use the promo code PCBEARD at checkout, or you can click the link in our show notes. It would also be pretty cool if you reviewed us in your favorite podcast app. It really does help. Thanks for listening. <laughs>